today on Paralysis to Purpose. It was really a time for us to kind of show, okay, who are six? Yes. Let's show the world who six are because we can't let the act of a white supremacist, neo-Nazi skinhead be the lasting message. This is Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast with David Cooks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. I tell you what, I say this every time because it's the truth. I love what I do because I get to have a conversation with some of the most intriguing and influential and inspirational people in the world. And today is no exception. You're really going to enjoy this podcast today. So thank you in advance for sharing this podcast, liking this podcast, leaving a review and subscribing for our newsletter. On August 5th, 2012, a gunman walked into a temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. He murdered seven people and then he killed himself. Our guest today lost his father and members of his community on that day. Pardeep Kalika is the co-author of the book, The Gift of Our Wounds. He's the executive director of Interfaith Conference here in Milwaukee. He is a trauma clinician, a well-known speaker, and known as a global peacemaker. I tell you what, I am so glad that, that to have him here today. His story is amazing. So Pardeep, welcome to Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. You know, first off, I just want to say, man, it's, it's great to be on with you, yeah. David. You are, you are definitely, I think, you, you know, for, for a lot of people, I can speak for, uh, for the vast majority of people that you are their hero. And we look up to you and for leadership, guidance, inspiration. And, uh, you know, just want to encourage everybody to make sure that they go get, go, go out, get David's book. Um, uh, and it's getting undressed, right? Yeah, yeah, it's getting undressed from paralysis to purpose. I remember when I first met you and um, you were talking about, you know, high school and basketball and how you were a great, great player. And I'm like, do Indian people play basketball? <laughs> <laughs> now, I know I'm not supposed to say that, but that's what I was thinking. And, I, and immediately I had to catch myself and say, OK, this guy has made inroads on many fronts, including that. Um, and um you're not you're not wearing your turban right now you're not what you know so that day really opened up a lot for me to start to understand a lot more that i didn't know so let's go back to that day uh and let's talk about um how you eventually got to the place of first of all uh dealing with the tragedy of the day with the loss of the day with the significance of that for you and your family and then um more importantly what you did after that and how you were able to go go from that place of hurt to forgiveness and then the stuff that you do now. Yeah, no, thank you, David. And yeah, again, I just it's an honor to be on uh, with you at, uh, and really just uh, talking about that day. Um, but I, I remember our first conversation as well, just thinking about yeah all the stereotypes that we do have of different people. And then going on that journey with them 
but also it's a journey for ourselves too. It's a, it, you know, whenever we journey with someone else, you know, we're holding hands with our, with ourself. And so um, that day, August 5th, you know, I lost uh, my father who was a temple president at the Sikh temple. Um, and then six other people who were killed by uh, an affiliated white supremacist. And I think that it's important to say that mm -hmm. because of what is happening right now. And we'll talk a little bit about what is happening right now is that you're seeing a lot of unaffiliated, unaffiliated people carry out shootings against minority communities, against other people, against women. And while some of this might seem randomized, it's not as random as we think. And it's set up in a way to terrorize communities. And uh, I, you know, when that happened on that day, I was just dedicated to saying our community will not be terrorized. We will not fall prey to being victims. We will tell the world who we are. And, uh, and I think that that was really my, my charge personally was to say, okay, we need to heal as a community in, like internally. But after we do that, we need to get out in the broader community and teach people who we are, um, what we stand for, and what our beliefs and faith stands for. And I think that, you know, that shooting that day brought us back to the reality of what we probably should have stood for when we first came to this country. Six have long stood for social justice. Since the, since the uh, conception of Sikhism, we have, you know, we've been all about equality, all about, all about justice, all about reform. And somehow, some way, this American experience made us forget that and say, oh, well, we're about making money now. We're about gaining whatever it means to gain to achieve the American dream, while also maybe we might be losing something that we should have held on to. And so when the shooting happened, it was really to say, how can you reclaim that? And I don't think that's unique to six. I don't think, I think that is within all communities. It is their responsibility to go back and take whatever it is that they were supposed to be, whoever they were supposed to be. That's a difficult, that's a difficult thing to do. That's a difficult conversation to have. But I think that when we're talking about the sense of purpose as we go forward, that's really our purpose. We have a communal, we have an individual purpose for sure. But we also have a communal purpose to come back and say, what have we lost in America because of who we wanted to become? And why do we need to go back right now and go reclaim our ancestral heritage, our, our uniqueness, whoever we are, right? And say, as we go forward, I wanna bring forward my entire self and I want other kids to follow and say, I'm proud of who I am. You said a couple of things that I find very interesting uh, as an African-American. Um, and you talked about healing yourself first and then sharing with others who you are. Can you just share a little bit of the process of healing within and then reaching without? Yeah, no, David, that's a great question. And, and really, I think it is that way. If we genuinely want to heal, we do have to first for, foremost come back to self a lot more than we go out. And, when, and we're great at, as a society, we're great at looking out of the window, right? We do it all the time. They're going through this, they're going through this, that person's wrong by doing this. We're great at looking out of windows, but we suck at looking in the mirror. And the healthiest thing that we need to do is, and I'm not saying ne let's neglect 
the, the window. Let's neglect the world. I'm saying that, uh, yeah, like as, as you look at yourself twice, look once outside the window. So it needs to be proportionate. And then say, we can do this work at the same time, but also understand that the work that you're doing is having an effect on you. And for that day, um, you know, I was, I was about 10 minutes away from the temple when the shooting started. And the thing that saved us was really my daughter forgetting her notebook at the house and us having to turn around. And so what that day taught me was, and, and then I wrestled with two feelings right away. My, both my mom and dad were inside the temple at the time. My mom survived. She hid inside of a closet from the shooter. My dad obviously didn't survive. Uh, he took uh, five shots. Uh, and then, but what stood, like what, what, what the feeling that really was overwhelming that day was survivor's guilt and survivor's relief. I was with my two children at the time and I was relieved that as a father, I didn't have to go save them from a, you know, a crazy gunman who was going to kill everybody in sight. And I was relieved of that. But then I was guilty because I dedicated my life to, you know, at that time, you know, policing, teaching, serving community. And I felt like I wasn't doing enough. And I felt like, and I felt frustrated that we weren't doing enough as a country to be more welcoming, welcoming of immigrants and, uh, and religious minorities and, and uh, you know, the, the black community and all, I mean, just all communities that were being marginalized at the time. I just, I, I didn't feel like we were doing enough, but as much as like, again, like I had to ask myself, well, are you doing enough? And that's a, that's a, that's a real moment of like reflection of like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe you can just stop looking out and look, look inward and say, maybe we're not doing enough. And it took me a while to kind of come back and say, okay, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to dedicate it to preventing hate crimes like this from happening to anybody else. And, and I didn't know that God, and you know, sometimes God's the spirit, you know, whatever it is, is much bigger than I can ever explain it to be. Right. But something, something was pushing me to say, okay, this is what you, where your purpose lies. Mm. You're going to keep going forward. And then, you know, I, I didn't know that I was going to find my purpose in, in, in what happened that day or, where we went forward, but it was very much a personal journey of healing and, and a communal one. Wow. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of times um, our purpose is birthed in pain. And uh, we would rather have that not be the case. I think if <laughs> I tell people all the time, we don't get to choose necessarily the road of adversity that we're going to be on, um, but we do get to choose how we respond to that. And in your and your response, I think, is 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 just amazing. Over the last nine years, 10 years, almost a decade now, have you seen a change in that and how your community is perceived and received? Yeah, I, I'm seeing, David, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a change starting to happen with that. And I say that um, post 9-11, some of the first victims after 9-11 who received a lot of the sort of the um, the community backlash were six and and a lot of them were turban wearing six in this country most of the people that you will see i would i would even give it a number maybe like 95 90 percent um who wear turbans are going to be six i'm not wearing uh, a turban right now 
I sometimes wear turbans to weddings or funerals or, or uh, religious occasions, but not every Sikh wears a turban all of the time. Some Sikhs wear turbans all of the time, but most of the people that you will see in this country who do wear a turban will be Sikhs. And, and so, but but not to say that those are, those are the only six. Right. There's a lot of non-turban wearing six. So I think that, that yeah, after 9-11 happened, six started to get to be known. But, but as far as like, I think really 2012 opened up people's eyes to who six were, because part of that was now you had this white supremacist who was ex-military, right? Who did the shooting, who caused the shooting. And, and the message was at that time, you know, Barack Obama was running for his second term as president. Many people were calling it a post-racial society at that time. And now, I mean, 2021, we're like, oh my God, we were just so naive, right? But there were some people who were advertising the United States to be a post-racial society at that time. And what that moment told in history was we have a lot of work to do. Here was this immigrant class who moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and at that time were, were creating their American dream, only to be told that they weren't allowed this American dream, that somehow, some way, it wasn't meant for them. And how many people in, in the United States right now are being told the same thing, right? Are being told the same thing. Yeah, we advertise this American dream, but it was really not meant for your people. It was actually meant for a specific kind of people. And, and we have to be honest with that history to do something about it, right? Truth and reconciliation. Truth comes first before reconciliation. Let's say that statement one more time. You said truth comes first before reconciliation. Truth wow. comes, yeah. As and this in this country, we gotta be, we gotta be honest with that truth. So so for us, it was really a time for us to kind of show. Okay, who are six? Yeah. Let's, let's show the world who six are because we can't let the act of a white supremacist, neo Nazi skinhead be the lasting be the lasting message. That's right. That's right. Because that's that would have been the final association of many people with the Sikh community. Exactly. And that's not what it is at all. Exactly. At exactly. All. And so, then the, and part of part of this is honestly, like I saw a lot of children inside of our temple walls who were also kind of hurting, but didn't know how they were hurting. Mm -hmm. And and part of them wanted to stay behind that safe wall. And you know, me being me being out in community and kind of even as I reached out to Arnold, who's a former white supremacist who started that same gang, part of that inspiration was to say, you know what, I can't let you exist in trauma. Yes, you're okay. Like, you know, you said earlier, like, I, we would have been fine to be upset. We would have been fine to be mad, disgruntled, or even, you know, existing in our trauma. But that's not freedom. That's not forgiveness. That is, I mean, that, that, that is, like, that's exactly what the shooter wants us to do. You talked about reaching out to Arno, who we're going to um, have on the podcast at, at some at some point, and then the both of you together. Uh, re you reached out to a white supremacist um, to help you navigate through this tragedy. That's unique. 
I mean, you, you <laughs> I, mean, I don't know anyone who would have gone through that experience and went and tried to reach out to someone who used to be a part of that to help on this journey. How did you come up with that? You know, how, how yeah, did you think back? Yeah, I think I think back to it right now, and I really do think that God's God's hand was placed on all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that sadness is not necessarily a bad thing that happens to us. And happiness is not something good that happens to us. Mm -hmm. I think sadness is a state of being where you see the clues in life and yet you neglect them. Happiness is basically you see the clues in life and you follow them. And so you get to a place where you're following this this guided hand, and I hate to say that, like tragedy and pain and all of these things help you get there, but they they do and they did. And three, so yeah, three months after the shooting happened, I, I reached out to him because because I wanted answers. Right? And I can say that now, I, say I wanted answers, I wanted some closure. I knew that part of me was also kind of like three months into it, I was doing my best for this community who didn't want to come outside of their sanctuary walls. And I was I was getting fatigued. I was get I was tired because when you're when you're fighting against the the community outside, right? Mm. A culture of what white supremacy looks like, and then internally you're also fighting with the people that you know you call family, right? You get fatigued. You're like, oh my god, I can't fight on all fronts. I can't fight for you and against you at the same time. So part of me reaching out then and the shooter in this situation, uh, for those that don't know. Um, killed seven people, and then he took his own life. So that's what's called a uh, you know mass murder suicide. So um, that's, that's exactly what happens in a lot of these situations where somebody carries out and kills a lot of people before they take their own life. Um, so with him, went the exact motive, went the, um, you know, what, what happened. So when I reached out to Arno, Arno started the same organization that the shooter belonged to. And what I wanted to know was, did he know him? Did he recruit him? Did he train him? Did he brainwash him? You know, did he, did he know what he was gonna do before he did it? So all of these things, I wanted to get all of these answers. By the time that I met Arno, he was reformed, but he was still very early on in this process of reforming. And there's a whole process that even happens right there. And with Arno, you can talk about you know, forgiveness on what that looks like, a self-forgiveness, right? Of like being part of this ideology and then trying to escape it. Um, and then on just the, the, the tanglements that come with all of that. It's an ideology of who you have to give your life to. When he was going through it, he'll tell you this, but it was like every moment that you would experience kindness or niceness or somebody of a different color treating you like a human being, you had to separate yourself from you had to actively do something to make sure that people would not humanize you of different skin complexions because you wanted to continue that narrative in your head that it's us against them. And every moment that that kind of like, uh, you know, talks about multicultural kindness and people getting along was something that like would chip away at that ideology. And then this is kind of what we talked about the first time that we met, yeah. you know, but, but deeper than that, was really, you know, here I was looking for an explanation on why, what happened, and all of these things. And what I gained was an experience. Mm. So, like, kind of when we think about this, a lot of times in our society in America, um, 
we lead with our head and our heart follows, right? So we're anchored to our head. We're anchored to this head that tells us all about judgment, all about what we, what somebody is, should do or what they what we'll do, right? This head part, and then our heart follows. What we need to start to do is start to anchor it, as you said, and, so, and you know, for us, we're both people of faith. Right. So when we talk about the heart needs to lead, right? We're talking about God needs to lead. Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about the spirit needs to lead. And then the head follows, right? Because if you're anchored in this heart work, and, and what I what happened the first time that I saw him, and, and, and you know, yeah, and I thought that I was anchored to the heart work, even when I first met him, right? But what he taught me in that moment of like, and when you know, for our first conversation was one of empathy, where you know I, I hurt my eye, and he's he's you know asking me about what happened to you, and here I was looking for explanations on the shooter, the motive, the this that. Here he was also being guided by mind work, right? But by like, what am I going to say to him? What? Is and then all of a sudden there were just two men, who like like we're talking, and we're just talking from the heart, right? And when yeah. hearts talk, hearts listen. When minds talk. Minds listen. So when we're doing this purpose work, right, we have to we have to go forward and say, you know what? As important as the explanation is, it is important. But the experience of brotherhood, that's that that's over everything. That is over everything. So now you have two men, you know, one man from a different walk of life, one man, man we're sitting here just two the world will see us as two men who are, you know, more like than, than uh, more, more uh, unlike than we are the same. Right. But we're like, no, I, I'm telling you right now, David would probably continue the sentence. I'm about to say it because he gets this purpose. God work, right? This is a great place for us to take a quick break. And when we come right back, we're going to dive right into what you're doing now. We hope you're enjoying Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Paralysis to Purpose for more updates. Also, check out David's website at davidcookspeaks.com to learn more about his mission and purchase his book, Getting Undressed, From Paralysis to Purpose. Welcome back to Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast, with our guest, Pardeep Kalika. So, so now you um, um, are an executive director of, Inter, of Interfaith uh, for Greater Milwaukee. Um, how did you come into that position? What, what does that mean? What are you guys doing um, uh, that is tied to your purpose individually? So over the years, and this is over nine years since the shooting happened it's, itself, um, I have traveled from East Coast, West Coast, right north to south, and really to different mass shooting sites, meeting different families. And the families are all over the place because the incidents are kind of all over the place, you know, from Newtown, from seven-year-olds being shot in their classroom, right, and, and killed, to West Coast, to churches, to synagogues, to masjids, to schools, universities, to inner city violence, to all of that, right? And and just seeing seeing a lot of death, and along with that grief. Mm -hmm. And what we've tried to do is always kind of make sure that the healing part is part of that grief process. Okay. So this is working with these survivors' families, um, working on advocacy policies, trying to keep people safe, um, however that looks like, right? 
um, against domestic terrorism, foreign terrorism, all, all kinds of threats of violence, right? Targeted violence. And what I've, I've, you know, what I've come to kind of conclude is that faith is always a big part of the healing process. It always, it always is. Whether you can name it, whether it's the, you know, whether it's theistic or not, whether it's 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 something that you believe in, you say, well, I, I don't believe in any faith at all. I think that we are all people of faith. You know, I, I don't think it's just reserved for the clergy or for those that are ordained. But I think that if you know that tomorrow can be better than today, you are all people of faith. I learned this from, you know, when I was working as an educator uh, with uh, with high school, at what, what the state labeled at-risk high school youth, right? And I saw this, I saw I would see children, and you know this because you've worked with children, you worked with high schoolers yourself. And so it's like, you know the situations that that child is going through. You know some of the heartache that that child feels. And when Monday morning comes up and, you know, Mr. Cooks asks him for homework and, he, and this person comes up and gives you his homework, is that not a person of hope? Is that not a person of faith? Does that person not th know that, hey, as tragic as my personal situation is at home, mom and dad are, are, are hurting each other. But here I go giving Mr. Cooks this, this homework because I know in a couple of years from now, I'll be graduating from high school and then going to college. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to fight against the injustices that kept me feeling like I wasn't powerful enough at that time. Mm. And so we are all, we are all, you know, people of faith. And what, why interfaith is that I saw a lot of people working with different clients, sexually abused, hurt, um, you know, men coming out of jail, uh, deferred prosecution agreements. And I saw them and I asked them, I said, how does faith lead your life? And oftentimes they would say, well, it doesn't. I said, well, why, why doesn't it? And then they, they, would, they would reply and say, well, because when I look into uh, a church, or when I look into a religious place, I don't want to go in there. And I, and I said, why? And because I don't feel like I'm worthy. I don't feel like, I feel, then oftentimes they would say, well, the harm that has been put upon me, I, I feel like I wouldn't be worth going up to God or, or in their eyes. And I was like, man, you should be the first person. Right. You should be in the front pew. Right. You should, you should be the life lesson that that whole congregation needs. Because as you said, faith is only real when you participate in it. Right. Can't be prescriptive. Somebody can't just tell you what it feels like. You got to go through it. I mean, we can try, right? We can talk to people, and say, but but you know, somebody right right now is going through it right now. Mm -hmm. They're going through it. They lost their lives. They lost their, they lost their livelihoods. Lost their relationships. Somebody's going through it, and when that person participates in that relationship with whatever God looks like to them, right? I want to make sure that that person is in the front of the pews, sitting up there and saying, "Hey." Listen, I, I, I was always worth it. God never turned God never turned their back to me. I turned my back to God. And all, all this is, is me returning back where I was supposed to be. And so I wanted to make it where that would be the reality of all faith and faith leaders to say, what role do you play in healing? I need you to get outside of your walls and go flag that person down on Burleigh. 
right? On 16th right. at right. the chapel. Go outside. Don't wait for them to come inside. Go outside and invite them in because that's going to be your most dedicated uh, parishioner. Wow. That's so, that is very powerful. Um, you talked a little bit indirectly about perspective and the importance of how you see in that last example, how you see yourself and, and that type of stuff. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the importance of perspective as, as, a, as you go on the journey from a traumatic experience and, 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 and how you have to maybe shift your paradigm or shift your thinking uh, to maybe see it differently and, and how that d- does that help? Yeah. You know, from the clinical perspective, so I'm also, you know, also a trauma clinician, what isn't talked about and what needs to be talked about a bit more is trauma looping. And so a trauma-based reality and how some people, and you, you, you see this on social media, you see it in person. When a person is telling you the same story over and over and over again, that person is actually trauma looping. We, we might not, we might not be attuned to it because we're like, okay, let's put this, you know, we want to respect this person's story, right? When a person is on social media, and they're talking about the same thing all the time, no matter what the subject matter is, they're actually trauma looping again. They just don't know they're doing it. So when that was happening, it was really important for me to slow it down and say, okay, slow this down because you're starting to loop. You're starting to say the same thing. And now let's be creative and like, let's take some of this apart. And so, yeah, it is very much a, a paradigm change of lens shifting to say just kind of not like not in a toxic way but david in like a a productive way if you lovingly challenge yourself right and i will say that arnold played a really big role in that right because now you have a person who is like he's part of that harm so i think within the relationships that we have in in the world if we're going to get out of this trauma loop of racism of violence we will need the entire community to come together as a village and say, okay, let me lovingly challenge you out of it. Not toxically. That's right. Not, not invalidate your feelings, but make you kind of like, okay, like, like, what, you know, what is, what does that feel like? And what does that, what does that look like? And so, yeah, part of it was that. And, and, you know, family played a big role in that. Obviously family always does your nearest, dearest, right. Right. Your children, um, you know, um, your community, your, your faith, all of that, all of that plays a big role in that. And I think that, you know, sometimes we, you know, we think about hearts that listen. Um, sometimes the most important heart to listen to is yourself, is just your own. It's your own. I want to talk to you about Indianapolis. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a mass shooting and some sick people were uh, targeted in that, um, in, in that shooting. Um, and then also about what's happening in, in India at the time of this recording. They are, they are experiencing uh, record cases and deaths of COVID like we've never seen. Um, and I know that um, you, you're originally from Punjab, India. And um, you know I don't know if you've got relatives there and how, but let's talk about a little bit of that. Secondly, first, let's go back to uh, the shooting down in Indianapolis and the work that you do, uh, there has been, it's interesting. I heard some statistic that since the beginning of the year to now, there have been like some 50 mass shootings or something, some crazy number. We don't hear about them all because they're not all, they're not all broadcast on the media. That's a really high number. 
Um, yeah, it is a high number. And, and if you go back, depending on how you, how you define a mass shooting, some people define it as four more people being shot. Mm -hmm. So other people will define it as four more people being shot and killed outside of the shooter, right? So the longer you get with the definition, the less the less uh, the numbers of mass shootings. But if you were if you were if you just said okay, four more people being shot, right? Which is pretty like pretty that's, that's bad. That's tragic. Yes. Right? And to, in twenty twenty last year, we would have had six hundred mass shootings, more than one a day, and so there's a part of us that's being so conditioned and, and normalizing mass murder to the point that it's like, we're existing, we're the frog boiling in this water that can't jump out and can't make decisions and, and really can't change policy, but, but it's happening everywhere. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, that while this would have been 20 years, 30 years ago, you didn't have the scale. And I, and I fear that if we don't do something now, we'll have a thousand mass shootings a year. We'll have three a day in the United States that will get to a place that this is just so normalized. And, you know, what happened in uh, Indianapolis was was tragic that, you know, you have a 19 year old who uh, and, and let's call it what it is. I mean, 19 year old white male. Um, a lot of times it is white males that carry out um, a lot of these shootings. Uh, 98% it's a male. So we also have to talk about the way that men uh are prone to an externalizing violence and harm um so i think all of those things need to be talked about but yeah you know the community in, in indianapolis i've been in touch with them they are doing some of the same things that uh, we did as far as like putting a brave face on for the world um trying to heal internally while also working with the community interfaith communities are coming together to pray for them but i think what we can do as a society is to just really just commit ourselves to not making it normal and right. saying, yeah, somehow we, we, we owe it to our children. We owe it to future generations to say, okay, we, we did what we needed to do and we didn't leave this problem as just a problem for you all to solve. Um, and I think that we need to do that with other things. Uh, some of the most pressing are obviously um, health disparities, uh, health disparities that, that are happening within this country, um, violence that is being directed towards towards people and I think uh, global climate uh, uh, concerns that we have, yeah. Um, there's obviously mental health seems to be at the forefront of a lot of some of these violent attacks that people are dealing with things mentally. And COVID has put everybody, COVID has paralyzed everybody and has in one form or another and has affected people mentally in one form or another if they're honest about it. Um, I can tell you, um, I the last 18 months in November of 2019, uh, I thought I had the flu and I went to the emergency room and it was sepsis. And so I've had to deal with surgeries and other, and other things over the last uh, year and a half. And I came off bed rest just in time for COVID to be in, in place or in shelter. Uh, that was difficult mentally. Um, I'm used to talking to people, I love to hug people, go places, do things, be independent, and that was gone. Uh, public speaking, and all, that was gone. How am I gonna 
you know, I'm, I'm a man, I, I need to help my wife and make sure we're supporting the family, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I understand, I was grateful I had enough faith in me at the time, and I had some great friends and stuff that I could talk to to help me get through some of those low moments. Can you address a little bit um, the mental health aspect of, of, of what's going on and, and maybe what you think might, might be some solutions or ideas to, to help with that? Yeah, I think David just, uh... Thinking about the mental health, I, I think about it differently than I think a lot of people within the clinical world would think about it. And uh, mental health has been changing over the years. You know, we we were stuck in this like sort of like um, uh, kind of model of diagnosis. Now we understand it much more of a communal communal effect of mental health. And you you pointed out everything that sort of was like okay, like I'm feeling this, and I'm feeling that I should be you know, bring it or like doing this to, for my family. And I don't feel like if I can't do this, then I lose some like, and it's such a, it's such a personal issue. Um, that I think thinking about communities and what we can do about this as we go forward is we need to bring back the village. And, and, I, and, and that has gone by the wayside. When I first came to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, this is 19, 1982 we still had a village appeal. I mean, it was starting to, it was starting to leave because jobs were starting to leave because other, other ways of making money were entering into what Milwaukee looked like, felt like, right? But even in the 1980s, Milwaukee still had that feel of like the village. And you knew that if you cut up or your, your children cut up, that somebody else would say something to them and say, okay, Hey, young man, you know, I know that your parents wouldn't want you doing that, right? When I was an educator for 12 years, right, I, I worked with at, what the state would label at-risk high school youth. But my approach was always, hey, I'm part of the village. I'd call mom and dad first couple of weeks or call grandma, whoever the caretaker was, and start to get to know their name by heart. And so then when, you know, when Johnny was cutting up in class, I'd be like, hey, your uh, your grandma, uh, you know, Patrice would not like that. You know that. You know you wouldn't do that in front of her. And now this kid is like, man, how does Mr. Kalika know my, you know, my grandma Patrice? But right. it would be something that would be sticking their heart and be like, oh, he knows that because he cares enough to know that. And while I might not want him to know that, I know that he does. So I'm not going to cut up in his class. And somehow, some way, over time, you know, part of this is social media, part of this is the distancing of people, part of this is the product of segregation, everything put together, right. we have lost the village. I think people, that is a great, great point. Let me, and, and I'll let you finish it because I was listening to someone this morning um, who's a friend of mine and, and he's a conservative talk show host, an African-American conservative talk show host. And we don't see eye to eye on, on everything, uh, but he was talking about um, the breakdown of community in, in African-American communities, that old same thing you talked about, um, where the families didn't have to be always intact back in the day, but your community was. And your community was there for you, even if your father wasn't in the home or, or your mother wasn't in the home, you had a single parent home, but you had a community that was around you that helped you to understand what was right and what was wrong and what the expectations were. And as we look at uh, these homicide rates going up all over the country, um, I think it's time to have this conversation that we're having right now about restoring the village. 
about bringing back accountability, about bringing back standards that are that that will help us uh, to achieve. Because, quite honestly, it's not. I mean, police brutality is a problem, but it's not the problem. Um, systemic racism is a problem, but it's not the problem. You know, I think that we've got to get to the core of this, and and I think this restoring the village is 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 spot on. And 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 you're right. You know, these are these are manifestations of the bigger problem, but it's something that society thinks, and then they can almost absolve themselves of saying, "Okay, you know what? I'm fighting for this cause, or I'm fighting for that cause." Well, you you don't know what the village should look like for that community. You're just assuming, you know. And the only people that know what that village should look like are the people from that village. So just like a body heals internally, so do communities. And so how do you come out from like, and, and yes, I, I think putting a Band-Aid on the problem and saying, you know what, the, the external community should do that, should hold cops accountable, should work on systemic racism, should work on all of these other issues. But the bigger problem here, and one that we're not discussing, is the breakdown of family is a breakdown of that and and that's been happening so long that's been happening so long that it's it's such a, a deep ancestral wound that people don't even know why it is that they're turning away from god or faith or, or the family or the village is because they don't know themselves mm. they're trying to figure it out so they're prone to all of these impressionable sort of like outside outside forces playing on that void and say, hey, let me fill this void for you. Again, the only person that can fill that void is themselves. To come back and say, hey, listen, I need to go back and revisit the story of my ancestors. Yes. Right? I need to come back and I need to listen to grandma talk about what that felt like so that I can have that nourishment from, from, from a real place. And I do think you're absolutely right. Uh, it starts, it starts with uh, rekindling the family and whatever that is going to look like. Um, and then and and then go forward with that. I mean, that's a, that's yeah, whatever whatever it's going to look like. I had a conversation uh, a while back with uh, four young men, four black young men, and we were doing a program. And I started to talk to them about like just the ancestors and something. And and all of all of them were like, "Yeah, there's I feel it. There's something there. And there's something there. I, I can't. I, you know, they didn't know how to articulate it. Mm -hmm. But I was like, okay, yeah, you know what? Just un understand that." And understand in times when you feel alone, you're never really alone. Mm. That, that, that it's there and keep nourishing that part. And when you're, you know, like when you're in moments in crisis and when you feel like you're about to do something, listen to that part. Because that part is ancestral wisdom that nobody's going to be able to give to you, but you. It is our intuition. It is our gut reaction. It is like, no, I don't want to do this. Right. Right. The forces, the forces that exist outside of us that won't go into that discussion, can't go into the discussion, right, are manipulating a lot of these kids mm. to make them think that what, what, you know, their worth is somehow tied up in, you know, getting, getting or getting that. It's like, no, your worth is just tied up and you listening, you yeah. listening to that, that, that part of you, that small flicker. Right, which is going to grow if you just nourish it. Wow, 
That's excellent. Uh, one last thing, and it's interesting, um, as I thought about this and before we started uh, our conversation today, we was talking about India and, and, and the tragedy of COVID. And it's interesting that I would ask you that. And, and um, we live in such a sensitive time now. And I was like, I wonder if that was racially insensitive for me to ask him about his concern about India. But I'm, <laughs> I'm asking him uh, originally where he's from, you know, how is this impacting his family or because sometimes I just want to know because you're originally from India and that, and that's and I, I don't know what to do. We need to try to help. Um, and I didn't know if you had any insights or anything about um, the, the, the COVID, the COVID in India is, is deep. Yeah. You know, uh, I was having this discussion with somebody and I was just talking about health disparities in this country and kind of talking about health disparities in India, you know, India is still, if, if there's 300,000 cases per day, per right? Day. New cases. And if there's 300,000, I would be willing to, to bet that there's at least 500,000. So you, I think you can safely say that if 300,000 people are able to get to a test in India, that there's probably a whole bunch of people who are never really getting tested, who are coming down with COVID, and I would like half a million is is pretty reasonable in a country that has 1.3 billion people. So, uh, you know, I, I think that they're they got some real issues that they need to. I mean, as far as like politically, just where they are, um, you know, they they came out of lockdown prematurely and celebrated. I think a little bit too early. And as, as that started to happen, people started to gather weddings and religious uh, events and political rallies. So I, I think that, that our heart breaks for those families. We had, uh, our family had plans to go to India at the end of this year and visit some family there. But, uh, you know, the family, kind, uh, our family contacted us from India and just kind of said, oh, yeah, don't bring your family. Here's mm -hmm. what's going on. And shortly, like right after that, the news started to come out about all of those cases that are just skyrocketing. I, I do think that, um, I mean, I, I pray for India. I pray for, you know, I'm still from that, uh, from that dirt. I'm yeah. still from that, that place, right? Is that, and uh, you still feel it. It's, it's still close enough to be considered and say, you know what, this is, this is my motherland. This is what gave birth to, you know, to a boy named Pardeep in a small farming village. Right. And uh, yeah, but I, I don't think that's I, I want you to be able to say that. I mean, and, and we all trace our roots back. We Absolutely. Should. Absolutely. Yeah, I, and, I, and I wanted to have that exchange um, yeah. because I want people to understand that. I mean, you if it's OK. You know what? You got to go for it. And if you if you have a relationship with people, they will guide you through um, how to how to how to cover things and how to speak about things and what's offensive and what's not offensive. I, I guess one of the things that challenges me in this, in this day and age that we live in is that it's almost like I'm not allowed to determine what offends me. I need to be offended by what everybody else says I need to be offended by, you know, just, can I just be an individual and, and, and learn and grow. And, and if something doesn't offend me, it doesn't mean that I'm not supporting the community. That's not what that means. It just means yeah. I'm not offended by it, you know, and I and yeah. I think those, those are conversations, too, that I think we've got to begin to have in order to move forward on some things. Within America, saying, OK, um, is an organization, is an individual, 
is are you culturally competent? Now, when you bring in the word competency, it automatically assumes that it has something to do with intelligence, right? And 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 what we're what we really need to start to get to is, are you culturally humble? Is there a sense of cultural humility? So then we get away from saying, okay, well, you don't know about it, therefore, and, and you know, intelligence again. This is mind work, right? Right. Where like we're anchored to the mind and saying, well, if somebody doesn't know enough about this, um, then they must then they must not be intelligent enough. No, that's not necessarily the case. They might not have been exposed to it. They might have not been. There's all kinds of things. So as we start to have these conversations, start to say, well, I'd like to know that from your perspective. Mm-hmm. I'd like to. And I think that there's the, you know, one of the products of whatever, whatever we want to call this world that we exist in in America is presumption. Let me speak on behalf of you. Let me tell you how you should be thinking, how you should be feeling. And we don't understand how dehumanizing that is. Is it, oh, you just, you thought I would, I don't have a mind of my own. You thought, just because I'm being accommodating means I'm agreeing, right? <laughs> you thought, you know, but that, that's, you know, then again, like who has power? If somebody was to be culturally humble, they would say, well, David, tell me, like, can you, could you please share with me, like, how you feel? You don't have to speak on behalf of the entire black right, community. How you, right. How you feel. Yeah. How do you, how do how is it, how do you feel about this? Wow. And so I think that would, that and and that's that's relationship building, right? That's yes. That that's genuine relationship building. And what we need to also come back to right now is that you know I encourage people to say, you know what, you have to take care of yourself. If the last four years was difficult on you because of politics, because of divisive rhetoric, because of dehumanizing rhetoric, because of all of that, now maybe we need to come back to some of those conversations that we haven't had with those folks, with those people. And not that you have to have the same relationship as you had before, but if you're not there to like help educate, help teach, or, but like, you know, how can we blame it when like three years or four years from now that these people are, are even more ignorant than they are now? I want to thank you for being on Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. Um, you were great today, Pardeep. Uh, if people wanted to get a hold of you, um, to have you work with them, come speak at, at a, an event, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? The best way is probably just to contact me via Facebook. I don't I don't really do the Twitter thing too much, but um, I'm up to my friend limit, but they can definitely like just follow instant message. Uh, it's Pardeep Singh Kalika uh, at Facebook. Twitter is Pardeep Kalika. You know, at, at party Kalika. Thanks for the information, Pardeep. And uh, if you're listening, make sure you reach out, follow him, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever he is, make sure you follow him. And until next time, I'm Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. This is David Cooks reminding you that your ability to endure is always greater than your willingness to endure. You can do anything you put your mind to. Thanks for tuning in to Paralysis to Purpose. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paralysis to Purpose on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. To purchase his book, visit davidcooksspeaks.com. Be sure to tune in next time for more inspiring conversations with David Cooks. Music was my practice of hate and violence. If I wasn't out actually like committing acts of violence and like hating people on one-to-one basis, I, I would listen to this music 
which would basically serve the same purpose. Next time on Paralysis to Purpose. And so th that was how I maintained the, the, the lie, all of this, this whole suite of lies that, that is white nationalism and, and formed an identity around it. Paralysis to Purpose.